from deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm Adam Schick. While the season itself hasn't officially arrived, you know spring has sprung in Gainesville when the action gets going on both diamonds. Last week, Tim Walton laid out expectations for his top-ranked softball team, and they responded with a dominant weekend that included an 8-0 run rule victory over second-ranked Michigan. Now we turn our attention to a slightly larger diamond as Jeff Cardozo chats with Kevin O'Sullivan about his baseball squad, likewise the preseason favorite to win it all. But with basketball heading down the stretch, let's start today by talking hoops with Skylar Rimmer and FloridaGators.com senior writer Chris Harry. Let's begin with the backup center, who's in his first season at Florida after transferring from Stanford. The Orlando native is certainly happy to be back in the Sunshine State, and we asked him the biggest challenges about living on the left coast. Dealing with the time zone differential, you know, trying to contact my parents, you know, usually I could only do it at the end of the day. And for them, it was late at night and, you know, they got to get ready for work the next day. So that was difficult not being able to see my parents, see my sisters. It was difficult for them to try to get out for any games or be able to come see me. I think when I was out there, they might have been able to come to two or three games, you know, the whole time I was out there. And, and now they're at pretty much every home game and even are able to come to some road games just because it's a easier trip. In your time out there, how did you feel like you grew both as a player and also as a person? It was a growing up process. I think I had to learn how to be on my own, how to live on my own. I think that was huge for me just because I'd always been so reliant on my parents and my family. And, you know, I think that's an experience that, like, all college kids have when they first leave. And, you know, as a player, I think I grew just because any freshman taking that next step to college, you just get experience to so many more playing styles just because every opponent you play, you go into so much more depth. Gaining experience to the full regimen of being a college basketball player just really forces you to kind of specialize in certain areas. And, you know, I think going out there, going through my freshman year, I think it it really forced me to just like jump into basketball all the way. You mentioned some of the disadvantages to being all the way in California. What were some of the advantages? It's one of the places people in this country most want to live. What did you like about being out there? It was a beautiful area. Definitely think given the opportunity, I'd probably want to go live there again. But being in Northern California where you've got Lake Tahoe and you've got the Muir Woods and you know, you've got Santa Cruz and the coastline so close. And then you've also got major urban hubs like San Francisco, San Jose. And it's all, you know, within like a 30 minute drive. I was just fortunate to have so many different cultural experiences while I was out there. Stanford also is known for having some very obscure sports, which help them win the, uh, the Director's yeah. Cup every year. What was the most obscure sport that you saw in your time there? I don't think any of the sports were uh, obscure, but there were sports there that a lot of schools didn't have. Like, I know they had a men's volleyball team, and I played volleyball in middle school and had a lot of fun with it, but I didn't know of any other schools that had a men's volleyball team. They had, like, squash and and fencing and all that stuff, but I thought it was good that they were giving people opportunities to, you know, get involved with the school. That was one thing when I was out there. You know, I feel like every student that was there, you know, tried to do something with the school. It wasn't just they went to school and took classes. Classes. They also tried to uh, do something for the school. What have been the biggest differences you've seen between Pac-12 basketball and SEC basketball? 
My experience with Pac-12 basketball was their offense was more like transition oriented. I think it was kind of not faster paced, but I think teams in the Pac-12 were more focused on getting out on the break and running. And that wasn't necessarily what we did at Stanford, but I think as far as like the play style of the league, I think that kind of like fit what the majority of teams were doing. And I feel like with SEC basketball, it's more oriented on like half court, gutted out, grinded out basketball. It's more physical. I feel like we see a lot more zone in the SEC. Maybe that's just us, but um, I feel like that's kind of been the style for the SEC. You came to Florida as a mid-year transfer. So take us through the process of trying to get in with this team at a, a difficult time in the middle of the season. Obviously, last year didn't really go the way anyone kind of expected and I was just kind of thrown into the middle of it so it was difficult trying to find my niche in the team and get to know guys when you know everybody was going through this like extremely stressful season but going through that with everyone and that being my first experience with the team I think it helped me get to know everyone on almost like a deeper level because I you know like I saw them on their worst days they couldn't hide behind anything I think while everyone would have preferred to have a winning season I think it helped me get to know everyone on a level that I might not have otherwise. What aspects of your game do you think you improved the most during your time sitting out? Definitely gotten a lot stronger, gotten a lot more mobile. I and mean, I think that's you know had a huge impact on my game. And then I've just been getting up as many shots as I could pretty much since the day I got here. And I've definitely seen a huge change in my consistency and my shooting from mid-range and threes. You know, I'd, I'd always thought I'd been a pretty good shooter. I just was kind of streaky, and now I just feel a lot more confident. During your time here as well, what teammate do you think you've learned the most from? Probably Dodo. I think in the time that I've been here, seeing him change from who he was last year to who he is this year, I think he's taken a huge step as a leader. And I think he is a great example for all of our younger guys, just in kind of the transformation you should make over college. You know, you might not ever be as good of a player as he is, but you can kind of make those changes off the court that he's made and make those changes as a leader and as, as a person that he's made. And I think I've learned a lot from him, and I think everybody on the team has as well. This team has a bunch of road games to end this season, so I'm curious, what do you think has led to the struggles in the road this year and how do you address those to finish strong it's hard to win on the road and just got to have everything clicking on the right page at the right time and I think some of our toughest games our toughest opponents have been on the road so that adds just another level of difficulty as for our our struggles on the road I don't know necessarily if it's just we're out of our normal routine and it's kind of throwing us off but um, I think when we played Ole Miss on the road we definitely had everything clicking and I think it's just we're just going to have to find a new routine. So many people talk about identity and what is the identity of a team. From where you sit, what is this team's identity when it's at its best? When we want to, we can be one of the best defensive teams in the country. And then offensively, we're not great at shooting, but I think what we are great at is, or have the potential to be great at, is uh, offensive rebounding. You know, with guys like D-Rob and Justin Leon and Dodo and John, we've got one of the biggest, most athletic lineups in the SEC. So even if we have off-shooting nights, you know, that can help us out. 
I always like to ask this to people from Orlando, mm -hmm. the theme park capital of the world. Yeah. What is your favorite Orlando theme park? I'd probably have to say Epcot. One of my favorite things is the soda fountain where you can try <laughs> the sodas from all over the world. But I also just like walking around. You know, I've been to Disney so many times. And as I've gotten older, Epcot has become my favorite just because it's got so many different experiences. Just like a little glimpse into all these different countries. And I haven't really traveled the world that much, but, you know, it kind of gives you somewhat of an opportunity to. As a big guy, who do you look up to? I've got a weird list of like favorite players, and most of them aren't bigs. But I really like Tim Duncan, Derek Nowinski. You know, when I was younger, I had long hair, and everybody <laughs> called me Dirk just because I was a big white guy. I like guys who I kind of play like. I guess you know, I'm not saying I play like Dirk or Tim Duncan exactly, but. You know, I'm not the most athletic guy on the court. I'm more of a fundamental player, and I try to model my game after more fundamental players. When you're going through stretches where your minutes are varying, you're not necessarily getting in a lot during a game, how do you stay engaged, and what other ways can you help the team when you're not on the floor? The only way to be ready is to stay engaged. You know, I never know what my night is going to look like. I've had nights where, you know, I'll get in for, you know, maybe one or two possessions, and then the next game I'll play 10 minutes, and then the game after that I'll play 21 minutes you know I really never know like what to expect going into a game so the only way to prepare is to prepare myself for playing the entire game which I know isn't going to happen but if I go in with that preparation then I know you know whenever my opportunity comes I'll be ready for it in almost any sport a win is a win is a popular refrain that certainly applies to the most recent outing for the Gator basketball team, a gritty 57-53 victory at Georgia to sweep the season series. Combining that performance with a difficult home loss to Alabama, it wasn't necessarily a pretty week for Mike White's team. But as FloridaGators.com senior writer Chris Harry points out, it doesn't always have to look good to be effective. If you counter an uh, ugly half with a really pretty one, things work out a lot better. I mean, a lot of attention, obviously, is going to be focused on Florida going 7 for 29. And I think one of their first 19 from three-point range on the road at Georgia, which followed up an atrocious shooting performance against Alabama, obviously. You know, they, they go out in the second half, they shoot 50% from the floor, 50% from three-point range on the road, and win a game probably a lot of Gator fans didn't expect them to win, just like a lot of Gator fans probably didn't expect Alabama to come in here and win. So Alabama was a desperate team when it came into the uh, O'Connell Center on Saturday, played more desperate than the Gators did. The Gators went on the road and played more desperately than Georgia did. Maybe there's a comfort level there for a home team at some point because both of those teams had only lost one home game in the SEC to date. But big, big win for Florida. I mean, they'd only won two road games this year. One was at Navy. The other was at Ole Miss, a team that's you know settling down toward the bottom of, of the rankings. Georgia was a team playing for NCAA tournament possibilities. So to go on there and I think what was all lost in it, Adam, and as horrifically as Florida was shooting you know, 24% in the first half, Georgia was 32% in the first half, so you're guarding somebody. And is there is their willingness and their dedication to defense in the first half that kept them in the game, and that never wavered in the second half when they started hitting shots and it enabled them to overtake them and win a really big game and really improve their uh, RPI, really improve their postseason chances, and in essence kind of cancel out that bad loss of a couple days earlier to Alabama. We've talked so much during the SEC about Dorian Finney-Smith and his dominance, and it seems like everybody else finally caught up to that, and now the game plan seems to be take him out of the game and then see what Florida can do without him. Now that that's the clear strategy, 
How does Florida adjust to that as we go forward? I think Alabama, that was their strategy. They, in essence, just flat out face guard defended Dorian Finney-Smith, literally turning their back to the ball and preventing him from getting the ball in any place that he would like it. Georgia didn't necessarily do that. Dorian Finney-Smith had a bad day at Georgia. Uh, he was 1 for 10 from the floor, 0 for 6 from the three-point line. I don't think he's, he's gone two straight games without hitting a three-pointer. That's unusual. But what Florida did against Georgia that it didn't do against Alabama, Adam, is they found ways to make up for Dorian Finney-Smith. Whereas against Alabama, there's, well, Dodo's not getting going. You know, what are we going to do? There are other guys that were able to do things. And you look to other people, and guys made winning plays, whether it was Justin Leon with offensive rebounds. Johnny Boone made some big plays in the low post on some really, really nice drive pass dish feeds from Casey Hill. Uh, Casey Hill had, had another tough day at the free throw line, one for six, but he made some big plays. I believe it was five assists, only one turnover. Chris Chioza came off the bench and hit some free throws, kind of ran offense when they needed him. Devin Robinson, another good game, not high point production, five points, but six rebounds. So when your best player isn't playing well, you got to find a way to scrap together plays, make up for his lack of production. Talking to Dorian after the game, he loved how it worked out. It was funny, after the Alabama game, he said, we're going to have more games where we don't shoot the ball well. We're going to have to figure out a way to get by that. And then he looked at me, he smiled, and he goes, he goes, I just didn't figure it would be the next game. <laughs> but it only took him one game to figure it out. And if they can get that kind of production from various guys, they'll be in a lot better shape to overcome deficiencies when it comes to offense, especially on the road. We talked to Skyler Rimmer earlier in the podcast, and here's a guy who hasn't had a ton of minutes this year, hasn't made a huge impact, but has been important, especially when Ibunu gets in foul trouble, which happens frequently. He's coming in and, and just being solid and doing his job for Florida. Yeah, and just in the situation at Georgia, he, he outplayed Kavarius Hayes in the practices leading up to that game. Kavarius Hayes didn't get in the game the other day. Skyler Rimmer was the person who Mike White turned to when John Ibunu, you know needed a rest. Yeah, he doesn't get a lot of opportunities, and he doesn't score a lot of points, but he's had some moments early in the season. I think he had the six rebound game against West Virginia. They needed him in there. I think what White and his assistants like, they just know what they're going to get. They know he's going to be in the right place. He knows his role. He's not going to try to do what he can't do. Just a reliable guy. And as far as Skyler in the locker room, he's a very popular player. Again, came here as a walk-on, transfer from Stanford. He's from Orlando. His parents were Gators, so uh, they have background there and grew up a Gator. Having a guy that they can turn to is something that, uh, it's a plus right now, but they certainly would like to be getting a little more production out of Kavarius Hayes and maybe get a little more competition at that backup post spot, but they certainly know what they're going to get with Skylar Rimmer. The road does not get any easier now for Florida staying on the road, going to South Carolina, and you talked about desperation. They're now a little bit of a desperate team because they just lost on the road at Missouri, so a lot of pressure on them to hold serve at home this weekend. Yeah, and for South Carolina, it was their second straight conference loss, so they're in a mini tailspin, and they'll be at home for a new game the day of the South Carolina primary, I might have. So hmm. we'll be going into a political hornet's nest <laughs> as well as a basketball hornet's nest up Better there. Be careful. Yeah, that. yeah, that's right. Maybe a Trump rally may break out <laughs> or something. But uh, South Carolina is an interesting team, Adam, because they weren't that competitive the last few years. But what's happened, if you look at their roster, when you talk about Michael Carreras and Derek, Thornwell, Dwayne Notice, and I've been trying for three years to pronounce the name of the two uh, Eastern European big guys that play. They've grown. They've matured through. They're, they're seniors and they're juniors. They've played together and they've developed into a winning team. They're 21-5, and five, probably an NCAA tournament team. They certainly need to stop the bleeding and, like you said, a, a desperation game for them. Florida's had the last few times, I believe they've won up their three straight games. Beating Florida uh, in Columbia is not something that a lot of people have been able to see, so 
big game for them in terms of Florida, you know, a second straight road game. It may be viewed upon as maybe going in the week, you think if you get one out of two, you'd be happy. But I don't think Mike White wants his guys thinking, hey, we're playing with house money. We just beat Georgia. I mean, build the resume, build toward the postseason, get better. Okay, you just gained a lot of confidence by taking an awful offensive half and turning into a really good offensive half. Can you do it against a team that is going to be even more desperate than you were and see what comes out of it? Because it doesn't get a whole lot easier after that. You got Vanderbilt at home, then you go to LSU, then you're Kentucky at home, and then you finish the season at Missouri. So there's still some work to be done. You don't want to ever believe that you're in the tournament. Your resume is a finished product. You want to keep building on it, and that's what Mike White will want to do. Expectations are through the roof for the Gator baseball team following a third-place finish in Omaha and a ton of talent coming back. Combining that with a highly touted freshman class could be a recipe for a championship, but it's a long haul from February to June. Jeff Cardozo of the Gator IMG Sports Network sat down with head coach Kevin O'Sullivan to preview the start of the season, which really began in earnest back in the fall. In the fall, you're trying to work more on the fundamentals and, and trying to figure out your team, your roster, your depth, try to build team chemistry and, and all those types of things. I think things kind of get sped up a little bit more in the spring here. You've got a little bit more of an idea of where guys kind of fit, trying to make sure guys getting their pitch counts up, hitters getting their timing back, and really trying to stay healthy and get off to a good start. And certainly in the spring now, uh, all the expectations are there. Just about everybody has put you guys number one in the country. So how, how do you control that? How do you let these guys know, hey, we, it's a long 56-game season. Let's just take it one game at a time. I spent a lot of time thinking about this with you know with our staff, and I think there's two ways you can go with this thing. You can look at it as a curse, or you can go the other way and, and, and take it as a blessing. And we're going to embrace it, and um, that's what we've chose to do, and that's what we're going to do. You know, there's a lot of things that go into these preseason rankings. Obviously, you have to be talented, but I think the reputation of your program, where it sits, the, the amount of hard work that the players are putting on the field, obviously, you know, our prior success and all the effort we put in recruiting. So there's a lot of things that go into it. But we're going to embrace it. It's a lot of fun. We've got some really good leadership. We know we're good. We know we're talented. But obviously, we also know that our schedule is very difficult. And we've talked about that as well. It's a long season. We've got to get better in a lot of areas like everybody else. But we're excited about getting started, and we're looking forward to you know having a great year. Got a good mixture on the roster. Obviously, a lot of guys are back that went to Omaha last year. So what is that experience to help these guys? Because now they know they've been there. They finished third. They were just a couple little things away from maybe winning it all. So is it been a fired-up group? Are they ready to go, too? I think so. Just junior classes has accomplished a lot. You know, Obviously, last year finishing third and getting Omaha. They've also won an SEC tournament championship. They've won an SEC regular season championship. So I think they're excited about, you know, hopefully taking it one step further. But the biggest thing about our team is obviously we've got some very talented juniors that are going to be high drafts, but they've got a great supporting cast around them. We've got a very good sophomore class that had a lot of success as freshmen. We've got one of the top classes in the country in the freshman class. So there's a lot of supporting members on our club, and you know I, I would hope to think that the juniors don't feel like they've got to shoulder all of the load. We've got a lot of good players, and it should help those guys relax and play. Certainly I'm biased, but uh, pitching's so important, and you continue to get staff after staff after staff, and you look at what you guys have at the front end of the rotation, heck, throughout the entire rotation, what, what the midweek is. When you can throw Logan out there, who's been doing it for three years, and then what A.J. Puck was able to do at the develop at the end of last year, and Fajardo and Omaha and, and Dunning and all these guys, that's got to make you smile, doesn't it? Most people will tell you in this game that it, it all starts on the mound, and you know our starting pitching has been very good. Obviously, we've got a veteran in Logan who's who's been there, done that, and he'll he'll start Friday nights. 
for us. A.J. Puck was arguably the best pitcher in the country the last six weeks of the year last year. He's continued to get better. And then, obviously, Fajardo coming off a great freshman year and finished very strong, and he's, he's gotten better. And then you got a guy like, you know, Dane Dunning who's just continued to get better as well. All four guys have tremendous arms. We feel good about all of them. I've said this before. I don't know if it's fair to say, you know, one guy's a Friday guy, another guy's a Saturday guy or a midweek guy. We feel like we have four very, very talented starters. We've got to figure out how those pieces kind of fit. We've got to figure out our bullpen. But we do feel good about the depth on our bullpen as well. We've got some right-handed, left-handed matchup stuff. So I think depth-wise in the pen, we're, we're in good shape. And I feel really, really good about our starting pitching. First time I hit 90, I thought it was like the greatest day of my life, and I'm all excited. Now throwing 90, you're like a chump around here with, with what you have throwing. So that's got to be pretty cool, too. I know Sean Anderson's developed really well, too. So a lot of guys out of the pen that can just come in there and throw it by people. In inner squatting, as much as we have in the fall and spring, I think our pitching has helped our hitting. I feel like our hitters are going to be prepared as far as um, – being able to see some of the top-line arms we're going to see on our schedule. But you're right. We do have some talented arms. We've got some guys that have some really good arms. But I think probably more importantly is I've really been pleased with, you know, development of our secondary pitches. And probably the most impressive thing is a lot of guys have developed really, really good change-ups. And um, a lot of these right-handed pitchers have not been afraid to go right-on-right change-ups, which, which you don't see very often, but it gives them a third pitch. So I'm really, really pleased with that. And like I said, we've got some talented guys with some good arms, and now it's just a matter of them putting it together. So let's talk about some of those hitters a little bit, because if you have such dominant pitching, I'm sure in the inner squads, these guys can't hit at all, and, and they're frustrated, ready to see somebody different. But when, when you run through that lineup, too, just you know, you've got a good mixture. You've got guys that have been there before. You've got that junior class. You've got some sophomores, and you certainly got some freshmen that are going to contribute right away as well. Yeah, I think kind of the theme of our lineup is there's really not a whole lot of let up one through nine. I feel really good about the bottom third of our lineup. Obviously, it's easy to talk about Dalton Guthrie and, and, and Buddy Reed and J.J. Schwartz. Pete Alonzo has been swinging the bat good. We'll hit Jeremy Vasquez fifth, Rivera sixth, just to split up the lefty-righty. And then you kind of get to the seventh spot, and you're looking at a guy like Larson, who Hawaii did last year was hit 300 mm-hmm. and gives you quality at bat after quality at bat. And then you got two freshmen, you know, Deacon Lippett and Jonathan India. And they're both freshmen that have a chance to be freshman All-American type players for us, the guys we've had in the past. So we've got a nice mix of, of young and old. I think we've got some speed at the top and at the bottom of the lineup. We've got some guys in the middle that could drive the ball a little bit. And then we've got a really, really good bench. Maldonado from Tampa, from Jefferson High School, has had a really, really good fall. And you've got Christian Hicks, who's gotten better. Eddie Demurius and Danny Reyes have swung the bat very well. You know, Marco Savari, he doesn't get mentioned a whole lot, but he's he's had a tremendous early spring. So we got a two-way player named Corvath, Nick Corvath, who came from Santa Fe, who's been pitching very well, who's going to see a lot of action in the outfield for us. So we've got a lot of nice pieces on the bench. And like I said, I, I do like the depth of our lineup. Certainly, it's it's really hard to duplicate what you guys did defensively last year, and you lose Tobias at third, who had one error, which is still unbelievable to think about. And well, Richie gave you it short, and Bader running some balls down. But you, do you have some guys? I know you move Guthrie over to short. But what are they going to do? Uh, be able to field the ball? You know, those guys are not easy to replace. I mean, Richie's a first-round pick, and it's hard to put any type of expectations on whoever's going to play. You know, India's going to play third, obviously, start the season, but. You know, to go the entire year to make one error is quite remarkable. I'm not quite sure you'll see that again. But with that being said, we feel really good about Dalton at shortstop. He's great defensively. He's moved back to his natural position. And, and India has been outstanding at third base defensively for us. And I think he's going to be very, very, you know, offensive this year for us. But I'm really, really pleased with, with how he's played defense and really pleased with how Deacon Lippitt's played defense over there at second. So uh, we spent a lot of time in the fall on live defensive drills and trying to get these young players up to the speed of the game and understanding 
how important defense is and the emphasis that we put on defense. So they've responded very well, and I feel good about where we're at defensively. The last thing for you, Coach, and you know, certainly the, the what you've done here has been absolutely phenomenal and the, the, all the times you've been to Omaha and, and the preseason accolades and all this other stuff. But, you know, you guys as a staff, and you've been together this entire time. Are you guys still learning too? Are there things that you're implementing that you were different last year because every group in, in year is different? Absolutely. I, I, think, um, I think you always learn in this profession. And I think going back to the defensive part, a few years ago we, we spent a lot of time on live defensive drills, not just fungos for the infielders. We kind of got away from that. And this year we went back to it. It was one of the weaknesses of our team coming in because we had to replace the left side of our infield and had to move Dalton from second over to short. So I think you're always evolving as a coach. You're always trying to to coach your team to their strengths and trying to figure out what your team's strengths are and what your team's weaknesses are. You know, I think every year is different. Your roster changes, you know, every year. So like, like I said, I, I think if you're not learning and you're not trying to adjust or adapt to your club, then obviously you're missing the point. Well, fans need to adapt to uh, come out and see this team because you guys are going to be absolutely fantastic. Good luck and look forward to uh, going through another little fun run here in 2016. Well, I appreciate Jeff, and we're awfully excited about getting out on the field on Friday. I know we're going to have a great crowd, and we've got the 1996 team coming back for a 20-year reunion. I think we have over 100 players and family members coming back, so it should be an awfully special weekend, and we're looking forward to getting off to a great start in 2016. And that's going to do it for today's show. As you just heard from Sully, Gator Baseball opens this season with a three-game series at home against FGCU on Friday night, so make your plans to come support the top-ranked Orange and Blue. Our next installment comes your way next Thursday, so be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher so you never miss an episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you at the Mac.